This is the Improved Photography Podcast, episode number 175. Today's podcast is brought to you by Improved Photography's Lightroom Preset Steel. This comes around every November. Uh, Black Friday every year, we do a big blowout where we include a bunch of, of our best trainings and a new collection of Lightroom presets with styles fitting that year's kind of trends in photography. We do it every Black Friday, and it was a big success for the 2016 Lightroom Steel that we did this last Black Room Black Friday, but in the summer we do a last chance at at it each time, um, and so it, coming up in just a couple weeks at ImprovePhotography.com/presets, we'll be doing the Lightroom preset steal again. If you missed it in November and you've been seeing all the po the photos that people have been posting on the on the Facebook group uh, using the presets, then don't miss it. It is thirty nine ninety nine, uh, and we include over four hundred bucks of of tutorials on there, so don't miss that. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I am joined by Jeff Harmon and Connor Hibbs. Hey guys. Hello. Well, we got a ton to talk about today. Uh, the first question uh, comes from Jesse Smith, uh, who basically is trying to get her prints, uh, prints looking right. And this is a very frustrating process if you don't have your monitor calibrated. And so she did what, what most photographers do, what I definitely did a hundred times before I finally broke down and got a, a calibrator for my monitor. Uh, you print, you see the print is too dark. And then you try messing with the brightness of your screen. She said she had to set hers all the way down to zero before things looking right. And she's wondering, like, is this really right? Is this is this the way that we really have to do it? Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, and, and I took her question a little bit differently than that, where it looked to me like she was trying to put her brightness to zero, but it still seemed to look the same. It didn't seem like it changed anything by putting the brightness to zero. Oh, I see. And uh, I have seen, I've experienced something similar in, in a few different monitors where I go into the, the menu of the monitor. So not the, not inside of like OS 10 or Windows, but the monitor itself, you have the menu button on the monitor and you can go through the menus to try to change things. And I've seen it before where the brightness did seem to do like nothing. It didn't change the, <laughs> the brightness of the display. I'd go up and down. It didn't seem to change it. And then I'd go to the contrast setting, which is usually right next to brightness. And in changing that, then the brightness seemed to go up and down. And I just had assumed somehow they swapped those two things. And what was supposed to be the contrast was labeled brightness and what was contrast, you know, vice versa. So that's what I, maybe you try that. Maybe you try changing, try the contrast to see if that seems to change the brightness level of the monitor. And I, I took this the same way that you did, Jim. I thought they were saying that when their brightness was set to zero, that looked as close to a print as they could get. And my, my advice here is that you don't necessarily have to do all your editing with the monitor set that dark down to zero. I tend to edit first with computers, cell phones, other things in mind before I do any kind of print editing. And that's because I, while I calibrate my monitors, most people that are going to be seeing my photos don't. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to edit in a way that is going to look appealing on what the average Joe is going to see. And after that, if I'm going to be putting some prints together, then I'll dim the um, screen down a bit lower, down to about halfway on a Mac. I don't know what it would be for this, apparently zero for her screen. Um, but that would be my suggestion is edit first for computer display with it a bit brighter. Once you have everything else set in, then you can dim the 
screen down and just lower the brightness um, of your photo. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've thought the same thing as you, Connor, is that, you know, um, a calibrated display totally fixes the print problem. I mean, once you've you've calibrated and you're printing with a good printer, you shouldn't have any more problems getting your prints matching um, if you're printing with a good printer. But most of the time, that's not what we're doing with our pictures. I mean, it's like one one thousandth, one ten thousandth of my pictures. Maybe every ten thousand pictures, I'll print one. Uh, but I'll show a lot of the pictures online. And very few people are looking at my photos on a calibrated display. Uh, I, I think all of us have had the experience of, of posting a photo online and then you see it on somebody else's monitor and it's like, ah, yikes, that looks terrible, you know? Uh, and because their, their screen settings are different. There's no way to guarantee that it's going to look right, yeah, even if you just turn off calibration and keep it, because every screen is different. But you you can pretty much guarantee that 99% of the people who see your photo are going to see it on a very bright screen with very vivid colors, because that's how, these, how monitors are generally coming out of the box, and very few people change it. And so if you kind of back down on, on the brightness a little bit and back down on the vibrance a little bit from a calibrated display, you're going to get at least somewhat close, but it's just kind of a tough thing. Yeah. It, it also seems to me it's worth calibration just so that you have as uh, a level a starting point as possible. Their own monitor isn't going to be calibrated and it may be off. It may be too bright. It may be have too much uh, warmth, might be too yellow looking, too blue looking, something like that could be off. But if your photo is off in that same direction, then it's going to look really bad. So having it calibrated so that it's kind of, you know, at the medium point, <laughs> if you will, then you have the that's going to make it have the best chance of looking good on someone else's screen where it's not calibrated. Yeah. And, and from time to time, it can actually go the other way. Um, one of my favorite photos that I took from last year, I was so excited about it. It was going to be a portfolio piece. I edited it on my calibrated monitor and I, I tell you, I've looked at it on 10, 15 different screens and it just looks horribly green and awful. And so I did something in the curves adjustments that just got it way off. It looks great in print. It looks great on my computer screen, but everywhere else it just looks awful. And I'm sad to say I can't have it in my portfolio now. Mm. Yeah, you know, I have a picture kind of like that, uh, one that I took of Tuscany that uh, looks I, I really cool like I love how it looks when it's viewed correctly on a on a good screen and it's just right but it's such a delicate little exposure that it can be off one way or the other just barely and it just looks like a complete disaster uh, so uh, there are sometimes if you get that really delicately balanced especially a photo that's you know supposed to be looking dark uh, it, it's really tough to get those those looking right every time all right, the next question comes to us from Jeff Kazoulis, uh, who suggested, uh, not so much a question, but we, last week we were talking about photographing bald people and the shininess on the head, and he suggested <laughs> using a polarizer. It's one we hadn't mentioned, so I thought that was a good tip. Have you guys ever tried that on glasses? No, not on glasses. I haven't on glasses. I, I, tried yeah. it, I tried it once on somebody with glasses, and I'd say it took about... 
of the shininess away off the glasses, uh, but doesn't definitely wasn't a total fix. I don't know if it's going to be the same people, same thing with a bald head, uh, but I kind of wouldn't doubt it because um, the polarizer is not meant for to reduce shininess on things that you're looking straight into. Uh, so I, I don't know. Any Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, the biggest problem with using a polarizer in general on people is that when they move, they're actually changing the angle at which that reflection is hitting you. So to really effectively use a polarizer with a person to use use it on glasses or a bald head, you're really going to have to be adjusting it quite frequently. And even who's to say that by the time you take your shot, it's going to be in the right place still. Yeah, that's so true. Wh- what do you do for glasses and what's your go-to thing for that? Um, my go-to thing, because I use studio strobes, is that I have modeling lights, so I can actually see the angle of incidence and see if that reflection is catching. Um, if you're noticing that and you don't have a modeling light, like many of us speed light users as well, um, just typically have the person move their head around slightly. Just tell them, oh, I'm catching a little bit of a light off of your glasses there. Most of the time, they're going to just want to take them off right away. They're used to it. People with glasses understand. I have glasses. I understand if someone's catching reflections, I'll just take them off. Um, But another good little tip is if you actually tilt the glasses just slightly downwards, that usually is enough that it'll actually stop that reflection from getting to your lens. Do a little bit of the librarian thing, slip those glasses down the nose. (laughs) (laughs) It only works on the right person. Don't tell children to do that because it looks really weird. Yeah, and and the other weird thing is that sometimes, like some people, you know, have glasses on, they'll take it off sometimes. Some people always have glasses on, and so they look totally weird when you take glasses off. So you kind of have to work with the person and and know, you know, if you always wear glasses and we photograph you without it, it's going to look strange to, to the people that know you. And so you kind of have to kind of have to gauge that. And, and I mean, don't be afraid to tell someone, put your glasses back on. I'd actually like to get this photo of you in your natural state. Um, I'm a 100% of the time glasses user. If somebody asks me to take them off, I will. But I'd rather just sit there, take another minute and get it right in camera. I know it takes more time in post, but especially with kids where it's hard to get them to keep their heads still and follow those directions we were just saying. Uh, I'll just do two shots. Yeah, I'll, I'll have them take one with them out and one with them in and try to get them to be as close to the, the same as possible and then, you know, uh, use masking to to put the two together. That can even be hard, though, because they'll move their head in between the shots. They'll yeah, put their head down, grab bit. their glasses. And, it could yeah. be, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's not easy any way you do it with kids. I've also had big, big struggles because I do mostly outdoor shoots. So the kind that changed to shade Oh yeah. So then, then you have like 30 seconds. <laughs> you put them in the purse or something to hide it. And then 30 seconds later, they're dark. So you, you yeah. got to go yeah. fast. Mm-hmm. All right. Nick McDonald says he was doing a shoot for somebody that wanted, uh, for a company that wanted kind of summery looking photos, but it was a very overcast day. And so he's trying to edit the photos to make them look a little bit more summery. Uh, and he was having trouble kind of pulling it off. And I can kind of understand what he's talking about because I had a similar problem uh, when I was in Costa Rica a couple years ago. I photographed this amazing looking blue river, like just it looks fake it's so blue uh, and there's this tiny little rope bridge going over the river and uh 
I was hiking with my wife and uh, I, I could have asked her to, you know, run across the bridge and take a photo because I thought it would be awesome, an awesome photo to like sell to a company that wanted to use it for like a, a running piece or something. Um, but neither of us were really dressed for running. We looked like we had been in a muddy rainforest for a few hours. <laughs> and so, um, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to capture the scene. And then later I'll, when we get back to Boise, I'll have my wife run across the bridge again and I'll photograph her or to have my wife, wife just run and I'll photograph her and, and composite her in. Well, the problem is it was a overcast kind of rainy day and I photographed my wife on a more sunny day. Um, and I just tried everything I could and there was no way you could tell just the quality of the light was different in both and I just could not edit them to make it look convincing at all have you guys ever tried anything like that you know I've, I've messed around with color temperature before and the only thing that I can really say is it seems like he's trying to do the graduated filter that's a bit warmer so it looks like you have a bit of a sun flare um, you can also use the radial filter and invert it and that might create a little bit more of a warm tone but really if you're having kind of a cool color day it's kind of hard to make it look super summery yeah absolutely and, and Connor you, you do a lot of studios so you get to control all of the aspects of the <laughs> yeah. light right so it's <laughs> But boy, those different days, um, even the, the time of day, the harshness of the light changes so much, it looks totally different. So it can be super hard to match those two things when those shots weren't taken on the same day at the same hour to, to make it look right. But Jim, don't, don't you have in your presets still some, some kind of uh, summary kind of uh, filter effect? Yes, I do. Um, the, there are some some summary kind of kind of looks in there. Uh, that I don't believe is from the 2016 Lightroom Steel, though. I think that's from another year, so you'd have to be a member of Improved Photography Plus to get that. Um, but I think more important than that uh, is just getting a convincing sky. And so you may look at, at Nick's sky replacement tutorial in Improved Photography Plus or on the website on Improved Photography if you don't want to do the subscription. Um, uh, that may be a little bit better of an option for you is just try to get that part right. It's kind of a tough thing, though. Or go go shoot your own sky that has the right exactly. summary feel. Yep. Yeah. Carol Pagliotti uh, says she needs help because her horizons are just never quite straight in her photos and doing a bunch of portfolio reviews. I can say that this is a very common problem <laughs> and all of us have made this problem. I've have made this mistake a thousand times. Uh, so what what are you guys using in in camera to get it straight? Are you using the virtual horizon in the camera, a bubble level on it, or you're eyeballing most of the time? You know, my experience has been that there's people have a skill for this or don't. So, for example, my wife goes with me on a lot of my family portrait shoots. She can't get that thing straight for anything. <laughs> sure, I don't know what about her technique it has it off so badly, but she's she's thinking she's straight. Obviously, she wants to take straight horizon shots. But then when I get it back in line, we're like, look how, my, how far <laughs> off this is. It's like, ah, what do I do? And, and on the other hand, mine are, tend to be pretty straight. I don't know what the technique difference is to, to tell you know her what to do differently. I'm sure maybe working on how she's holding her elbows or something would be good. But um, it, it does seem to be kind of a little bit of a natural ability to do it. If, if it's not running gun shooting, if it's landscape, then yeah, I will definitely use the in-camera level. 
yeah, in-camera level is probably my go-to because I do a lot of handheld stuff. I don't actually use a tripod hardly ever at all. But for those of you that have a tripod, obviously the bubble level, as long as it's visible, I know some of them are kind of in a weird spot, but as long as it's visible, a bubble level can be really useful. They even make little bubble levels that you can put in the hot shoe of your camera to see on three different axes if you're straight. Um, biggest problem I have here in Colorado is I'm right next to the mountains. So even if I am actually shooting pretty level, my normal landscape is going to look a little bit crooked and weird because of the way that the mountains sit. Yeah, and I I have never had great luck with the bubble level uh, because as much as you try to get it just right, if it's off just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit, uh, it, it just... It, it's wrong uh, because you can tell when you look at the photo big and so I kind of switched to just using the virtual horizon on the camera because I always get it wrong when I eyeball <laughs> it I, I'm kind of like Jeff's wife in that I always get it wrong and so I've switched to that and I've had much much better luck so might be something for her to try well uh, I know you guys have been getting out and doing a lot of shoot a lot of shooting lately Connor looks like you had a successful shoot at the sand dunes I actually have a shoot coming up that I'm just, I'm anticipating, I'm worried about it. This is a shoot that I've been looking forward to for the last few months. I'm doing an engagement shoot at the um, Great Sand Dunes. It's a couple hours away, but my biggest concern here is I don't want to get sand into my camera or into my lenses Ooh. or anywhere else, and it is a gigantic sandbox. Um, so I've been thinking about different ways that I can keep my gear safe. First thing I did is I'm planning my focal lengths before I get in that situation. I'm bringing both my camera bodies. So I have a 24 to 70 on my full frame and a 70 to 300 on my crop sensor. And that way I'm pretty covered on the whole focal range as much as I need to be anyway. Um, but one of those problems is that, as I said, I don't really have a decent tripod that I can bring with me. So I'm not going to be setting my bag on the ground. I'm going to just be carrying everything because I don't want sand to get in my bag and get everywhere. But despite all of this planning, all of this thinking through everything, I'm still just terrified that I'm going to do something that's going to ruin one of my accessories, my lens, my camera, anything like that. So I was wondering if you guys had any experience shooting in areas that have lots of dust, particles, um, sand, or anything of the like, and if you might have any tips for me. Well, I, I, there are some sand dunes not too far from my house that I've shot a couple times for night photography. Um, and I, I just never really had a, had problems uh, because sand is a lot heavier than you know than than dust flying up and so it, it unless it's incredibly windy i at least didn't have problems with like things flying into the cameras um yeah I, so I, as long as i kept my camera not in the sand i, I just didn't have any problems have you done that before jeff yeah, I've shot at landscapes a, a fair amount. I've, I've taken Boy Scouts to a yearly camp out at a sand dune. So I've seen how it can get in the gear. And you, Connor, you're exactly right. If you have stuff on the ground, that's where it tends to be a problem, uh, especially if it's going to be there for a long time, because there'll be enough wind going continuously, even if it's not a super windy day, that anything on the ground is going to start to gather sand. So putting your backpack on the ground, putting your camera bag on the ground, you're asking for stuff to get in there. But if it's up out of it and it's not a super windy day, then you're probably not going to be too too bad. It, it won't be much of a problem. Your shoes will have plenty in it. But your, oh, camera, yeah. your camera probably will be okay. But yeah, if, if it lands in the sand, that's going to be bad. Um, and if it's super windy, then 
that would be a problem. But then it's going to be hard for people to want to be there anyway. Yeah. Sand's going to be and, and around. So. Especially with it being a portrait shoot and everything, I, I need some decent conditions. My yeah. biggest concern here is that I'm going to be carrying two heavy bodies for sure. hours and hours. Yeah. And I really consider just going out to the local camera store and buying a tripod before I even go. Not necessarily because I'm planning on taking beautiful landscapes. I'm going to be focused on my people. But I just need something to be able to set one of these bodies down. So what if the you other, get something other, like a holster, like uh, I think Erica Kay uses uh, the spider holster. Yeah, and you know, I actually have the Capture Pro by, uh, uh, what's the company, Peak Design. So oh, it's yeah. kind of kind of the same type of thing where it's a clip, I can clip it onto different things, my belt um, or a bag or anything of that sort. So I use that for one of my bodies. Uh, but even then, I mean, Here, two bodies. Here's another suggestion. Bad. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen, I don't know if you've been to any sporting events lately for kids, but there's these little, uh, I'll call them sport wagon things. (laughs) They fold up so that they're, they're really tiny, but then you can expand them out and it's probably about a, I don't know, three, four foot long little wagon type thing, four wheels, little telescoping handle. That's what I'm using on all of my outdoor shoots, sand or not everywhere. I just, I have then all of my like I have tripods and light stands and modifiers and I have all kinds of stuff that I just throw into the wagon. And then we follow our family around as we're going to go take photos of the family and I don't have to carry all that stuff or have to worry about, you know, assistance carrying all that stuff or my wife having to try to drag it around. So you could do that to have a place to stick the stuff down. That's not on the ground. And there's walls that come up. It's it's just like a kid's wagon kind of thing. And, and it's great. Walmart, little wagon thing (laughs) fair (laughs) enough well we want to get on and talk about lots of new of other topics but before we do that we want to take a second and thank two companies that have helped to make the podcast possible this week and the first is thegreatcoursesplus.com i actually heard about the great courses from a family friend who is absolutely addicted to them uh, a few years ago and uh, he's just learned so much on all kinds of things and so when i graduated from college and i wasn't you know going to class every day and in an organized way learning new things i wanted to keep expanding my mind and, and learning as much as possible And so I have bought a few times courses from The Great Courses. The idea of The Great Courses is that they get college professors and industry professionals, the expert on a whole bunch of different topics. I mean, uh, music, literature, math, travel, science, history, and yes, photography. Um, And they teach a class, a master class on whatever that topic is. Uh, They have a National Geographic photographer that has some excellent photography courses. Uh, I've taken some of their courses um, in religion before. Um, And the cool thing about the Great Courses Plus is that you get it all in one dashboard uh, with tons of video courses uh, on just about every subject you can imagine all in one place. So you can get that at the Great Courses courses slash improve and sign up today for your one month free trial that's the great courses plus.com slash improve and sign up today the great courses plus.com slash improve and we thank them for their support of the podcast and by video blocks 
I've been a Videoblocks customer for quite a while and I really love my subscription. It's one that I use all the time. In fact, you've probably seen content uh, from Videoblocks on a ton of my YouTube videos. When I go to Iceland or I'll go to China and I want to put together kind of a trip video afterward, I'll have a lot of photos and videos that I took there, but I want to kind of supplement it with some uh, excellent uh, drone footage or, or high-end kind of uh, environmental photos of, of the area to kind of supplement the coverage that I got for the video and video blocks is an excellent place to get it the cool thing about video blocks there are a lot of websites that, that are kind of stock video websites the cool thing about video blocks though is it's $99 a year and you can download as much as you want there are no limits to it and that is really really unique so if you're a media creator and I know most of you listening to the podcast are Video Blocks is an excellent uh, website to check out. Uh, the next time you have stock video needs, really, really should check out Video Blocks. It's inexpensive. The license agreements are really expansive. You're allowed to actually use the content that you buy, unlike some of the stock video sites that are out there. Uh, so I have really enjoyed Video Blocks. Um, get your subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash x slash improve that's videoblocks.com slash x slash improve and we thank them for the support of the podcast all right well i wanted to talk a little bit today about long exposures uh, i've been working with some of the writers on improved photography so every single day every work day every five days a week at least sometimes six uh, we are releasing a podcast a new article i'm tongue-tied here uh, on improvedphotography.com and i've got to say the writers have been killing it um they uh each of them have a column so they write twice a month so you can kind of start to get to know the columnists on there a little bit and um man they have been producing some really really good information uh and for one of them uh kevin asked me to do a little bit of research and he had all of us kind of test our cameras with really long exposures and to see um to, to check out the long exposure noise. So this is different than just regular noise from, from, a, high, from a high ISO. What we're talking about here is uh, the noise just caused uh, because you're taking a very long exposure. And so I did a test at three minutes, uh, three minute exposure, and then after that, I took another uh, photo at three minutes, uh, but uh, that was after I had been working my camera for a little bit uh, to see how the effect of just the camera being hot affected the noise. And I knew that there was a difference. I mean, I've been told that before, but I'd never actually sat down and done a test of hot camera doing three minute exposure and then letting the cool camera cool down for a little bit and doing a three minute exposure. And I would say there's about 40% less noise in the photo where I had given the camera a minute to cool down. And so I had no idea that it was that dramatic of a change. And so from now on, when I'm doing long exposures, I'm going to take one picture and let the camera cool down for a minute, uh, maybe even take the lens, lens off and kind of block the front with my, uh, with my hand to not get any dust in there, but just to let the camera cool down and then take another exposure. I just had no idea that it was that dramatic of a difference. Have any of you guys seen that? Yeah, so I, I was looking into this a while ago when I was trying to do my first Milky Way galaxy shot. 
And uh, when I looked into it, I discovered that my camera model at the time I was using a Canon 60D camera that they actually had an astronomy version of that same camera. What? What is the difference between it and the regular one? And there's a couple of other things. They do some stuff with filters to make the colors look more right. Uh, you can capture more of the the color gamut in the stars and the galaxies and the clouds that are out there. So, but, but one of the biggest things they do is they add a lot of cooling capacity to the sensor. They, the back is significantly thicker on that. Um, so that they can do some cooling for the sensor and make it um, a lot dramatically cooler, like even cooler than like over that three minutes. So that first exposure you took, Jim, it's heating up during that whole time, right? They've got it. That's what they're focusing on is trying to make it so that sensor doesn't heat up even in that three minute exposure. And it cuts out a huge amount of noise by cooling the sensor down. So cool. and, and there's actually a company that will mod these uh, a bunch of Canon models for you. It's a German company, I believe, called Bader, <laughs> B-A-A-D-E-R, um, which probably means something good in, in German and does not mean something so good in English. But but uh, yeah, Bader-Planetarium.de. And anyway, they, they have a, you can send, you can ship your camera off to them and they'll mod it so that it will add that cooling kind of stuff to your camera. If it's something you're interested in, or maybe if you have a body that you've got rid of, you're, you're not using as much anymore, then you could turn it into a more uh, astronomy focused kind of camera, reduce that noise. Very cool. Well, Jeff, I am buying a new mouse for my computer for photo editing. Um, I have my, my, um, magic mouse for the apple that i've used for a long time but i needed to buy another for another one of my computers doing the video and i decided you know i might as well just try something else and so i know you have been testing out uh, some different mice uh, for the computer to see how big of a difference it makes what the best one is for photo editing on a computer w what have you found out so far Yep. So I, I brought in a ton of mice. I uh, went out and asked a whole bunch of vendors if they'd send me some to review and a bunch of them did. And I spent um, three weeks with each one. So I didn't want to have it be a single day experience. And um, I wanted to actually see how it went. So I, I spent three weeks with one that would make sure I spent, I got one, at least one full photo shoot that I would do in there to get a lot of experience, especially in Lightroom Photoshop is what I wanted to focus on. I love this, Jeff. Nobody spends time on this stuff. Like <laughs> Jeff Harmon is the ultimate person for finding the weirdest, tiniest, nerdiest aspects of photography and going crazy on it. I love it. <laughs> yep. And if you want to get the gory details, listen to Photo Taco. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. So, so uh, let me kind of just review very briefly. One of the things I wanted to find out was what high DPI mice are all about. Because I've seen them advertised a lot, especially to gamers. I'm not a gamer, so I can't tell you why gamers care because I don't have any idea. I, I guess it's it helps them be more precise as they're playing the game. I, I'm not sure. But I wanted to know, does that matter for photographers? Should we care as photographers about getting a high DPI mouse? And um, you know, we care about DPI in a lot of other situations. We want high DPI prints. We want to be able to have lots of resolution on our photos. But do we care about it on ice? Does it affect the portrait photography or whatever photographer you're working on? You're editing. Does it improve things? And 
uh, so I've tested mice with insane amounts of DVI <laughs> they, and they have buttons on them to switch between it. I guess the gamers need that because most of so, these were game mice. I'm sorry. But, do you mind if I cut in just a sec? So yeah, for ahead. those of you who aren't aware of this, so DPI is dots per inch. I'm guessing this is called something different in, uh, no, outside no. the United States, is it not? Oh, I don't know outside the United States. It's probably States. DPC, <laughs> dots per centimeter or something. I don't know. Um, oh. But what it means is, uh, if I'm right, so what we're talking about is just if we move the, the mouse a tiny little bit, uh, that it's actually registering that difference in how much it moves. So so what, what are some ranges of what the DPI might be on a mouse? Oh gosh, I'd have to go look at what they are. Like they, one twenty thousandth or something. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it or higher. They get they and they have. There's a lots of range. There doesn't seem to be a lot of consistency uh, between them on exactly what numbers they support. And sometimes it can be hard to find it out. Like they'll just advertising it as a high DPI gamer's mouse and not say what the actual DPI setting is. So how I much had, does it really matter? I mean, we're moving the mouse one twenty thousandth of an inch right like this one twenty thousandth of a what a centimeter and a half like this is crazy right, that's like right. an imperceptible like a fly flew over and just breezed <laughs> the mouse a little bit it's like yep we registered that sucker so what does it really matter <laughs> right you know so i have i have a really good friend that's a serious serious gamer yeah. and let me tell you, it matters to them because they want to be able to turn corners. It's mainly for first-person shooter type games that I've seen, and it's the most nauseating thing to watch if you're not playing because they're just moving around, whipping around super fast. So it matters. Just I don't see how it could matter to us photographers. They want and, to make sure the bullet in their video game hits just the right artery. <laughs> like <laughs> Some, Somewhat, I guess so. And, and it matters apparently that they need to be able to change it because almost every one of the gaming mice I tested had a dedicated button just to switching the DPI hmm. you can go through the different settings it had some you know increment of DPI and you could rotate through the top and then hit it one more time and it would go back to the bottom so um, yeah I, I spent a bunch of time trying this out just to see if I could make it for the most part at least for photo editing it didn't seem to matter at all just like you were expecting Jim uh, changing the DPI, I was like, it doesn't seem any different. It doesn't seem like it's doing anything else. I was hoping that a higher DPI setting might help you get into kind of more detailed areas in maybe portrait retouching, something like that, where you, your, your mouse movements are really small and maybe it would detect that easier so you wouldn't have as much effort like getting mouse fatigue in in doing a lot of tight editing like that i've had that before after a few hours of editing i'm like wow my wrist really kind of i need to take a break a minute and bang and kind of wrinkle my wrist out but it didn't seem to matter it so what my my final judgment for photographers is high dpi doesn't seem to make a difference it's almost not noticeable i did notice it a little bit um, like I, I have a 30 inch monitor I'm working on and I could go across the whole resolution of the monitor if I was going like so uh, from the panels in Lightroom on the right hand side all the way to say the the far left side of the photo going across the whole screen. It seemed like on a higher DPI setting I could, the mouse would travel a little faster kind of like acceleration does when you do that in either Mac OS 10 or Windows you can go kind of enable mouse acceleration and so it and feels it the momentum up. of your movement yeah, with the mouse and tells you want to go further across the screen yeah but but that was really negligible and so not worth trying to <laughs> trying to get a high dpi mouse so I, my my advice would be don't worry about dpi for photography it doesn't seem to 
really make a big difference. Um, some other things I learned about it was uh, surprising to me was that a bunch of these gaming mice, the software to use them was awful. <laughs> like the the drivers were not, it was hard to find them in some cases, especially for Mac. I, uh, that was another part of my testing is I did the testing on both PC and Mac just to see how they, they compared. Um, in general, the Windows drivers and software was much better than it was on Mac. They just, they had a harder time supporting it. Um, then, so, so let's talk about then my favorites, what I came to, and I'm going to be putting an article out on all of this, all the mice I tested and my review of each one, what the pluses and minuses were, uh, at improvephotography.com soon. But just to give you a kind of the, the lowdown on what to recommend for Mac, the magic mouse is really hard to beat. Um, I hated it at first. The ergonomics of it is just I wish the ergonomics were a little different. It's not tall enough. It's too low. Yeah. And so I, I didn't really like that. Um, I, other than that, though, really, really good mouse. I, I loved it. It had really good responsiveness. I like no wires. I tried both wired and wireless mice in this testing. And they the wire um, on the gaming mice, they did pretty good because they've, they've really focused on that and they make the wire really flexible. So it's you almost can't tell it's there, which is good. But I like not having it be wired. That's that's nice to have. And then, so but with Magic Mouse, that was that works flawlessly. Uh, I did find you, you kind of have to double click the mouse either to wake up your Mac or to kind of get it connected again. If if the mouse went to sleep and disconnected, then you have to double tap and it quickly reconnects and and that's all good. Um, if you like the style of the Magic Mouse, but you want to use a PC, there is something from Logitech in the space. They have it. It's called an ultra thin touch mouse. Um, but it's like half the size. So it's, it's about the same profile, like same thickness, maybe even a little thinner, but it's, uh, it's only half as long. And so the ergonomics were even worse to me. So the Bluetooth worked fine for it on, on PC. So it's the same kind of concept as the magic mouse. And it's a touch mouse, same thing there where you can do swiping motions on the surface, top surface of the mouse. Um, so if you want to try to get a magic mouse like device for the PC. That's a it's a pretty close uh, imitation of it, although the ergonomics I thought were even worse. Um, so I have it. it I, I'll use it in travel because it's a little tiny, tiny mouse and it's, it's good for that. But uh, it won't be my daily use for sure. My favorite. Oh, and then magic mouse on PC just doesn't work. <laughs> there's some software. There's some people who've written some hacks to try to make it go, but it's awful. You just you don't want to try that. It doesn't work well. All right, then for PC, my favorite is still Logitech. I've tried a whole ton of mice now in this, and Logitech simply makes the best mice. That's just how it's it's really come out. So um, for the kind of average person, if you're not wanting to spend a ton on, on a mouse, which I totally understand because it's it can get expensive, at about 35 bucks, which might seem like a lot to some, but the uh, Logitech M705, Really solid mouse, very nice, very ergonomic, very smooth, uh, has the wireless radio stuff. You get this little dongle you put in a USB port. It's it's great. I, I really liked it. But my favorite out of the whole group, um, and it's maybe because I have hands that are a little bit bigger, is the it's and it's expensive. Um, it's an $80 mouse. It's the Logitech Performance MX master <laughs> and uh, really nice. One of the things I liked the very best about it 
was that the middle wheel it has a clutch in it. So when you <laughs> <laughs> So when you're when you're browsing on a web page and you want to try to go back to the top really fast, you flick that wheel and the clutch engages and it just flies. It just it really takes Does it have off a parking brake too? No parking brake. You can turn it off. There's a Wait, little Wait, gotta switch into second gear. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't think I'd care. And the first time I did, I was like, what the heck just happened? But as I used it more and more, I was like, ooh, I really kind of like that. It's cool. So I don't know if everyone will, will get, get going on that, but, but I really liked it. And it just fits really nice in my hand. It's just really, really nice. Uh, I found that both the Logitech M705 and the Performance MX Master, I had less wrist fatigue as I was doing long photo editing sessions with those mice because of the ergonomics of the mice. So those are, are my recommendations on mice. Now, Jeff, I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, um, I use a Magic Mouse on occasion, and I really love the side-scrolling feature that, that, that it has. Did you yeah. find any other good mice that have that side-scrolling feature? So I agree with you. Side-scrolling, I, I, I use a ton because yep. uh, I am often in Premiere doing video editing. And when you're yeah. trying to scrub along that, that film strip, or in Lightroom if you're scrubbing along that film strip, if you have to actually go down to the to the little yep. clicker thing and drag it, that is a pain in the rear. It's so nice yes. with the magic mouse. You can just you know use two fingers and just side scroll along and your page moves side to side. It's really, really handy for that. Yeah, the ultra thin touch mouse I mentioned from Logitech, it, it replicates all of the magic mouse functionality. It looks oh. a little different. It's not quite as ergonomic, I don't think. Um, but you can do side scrolling. Works great on PC and Mac. It's it's really good that way. And then the uh, that's one of the other features I liked on the um, the Performance MX Master from Light from Logitech. It has it's not touch, so it's not it's not the same motion where you use your fingers yeah. to flick over. But it has a side scroll knob right by your thumb, so you you flick that and oh, the side okay. scrolls just the same. A little different motion, but at least you get the same thing without having to move the mouse pointer down to the bottom yeah. of the screen or whatever it it's, is to, to go to the side. It's more about the feature than it is about the ergonomics of it anyway. Like I, I just need to have a mouse that can side scroll and I've kind of given up on mice altogether, which kind of brings up my second question here. Um, do you have any plans on comparing pen tablets to mice? Because I'm a big proponent of pen tablets. Yeah, I really want to try it because I've never done it yet. I haven't done any Wacom or, or any kind of tablet. Uh, I want to try out like the Monoprice one too because it's significantly cheaper than the rest. I like a lot of the Monoprice gear, so I, I want to see how that compares. It's a, a review I want to do later, and I want to. I need to probably spend even more time with them because I never used them before, and I need to develop that skill to figure out how to use them before I really can review them. But uh, that's one I want to do. I yeah, used they, to have the Monoprice tablet and just like a five second review here, it ended up with me shooting it with a shotgun, literally. There you go. Just, <laughs> I, I kind of expected that for that particular thing. <laughs> but I've heard you other know, people that love it, absolutely love it. I just, I it was so glitchy and inconsistent for me that it drove me nuts. Yeah. Yeah, that, that can't do. And I mean, a lot of people have lots of complaints when they start using a pen tablet anyway, because it does have a bit of a learning curve. And I think that a big part of it is just learning to customize to the way that you want to edit and work. But now it's almost second nature to me. Like using yeah. a mouse seems a little bit odd anymore. Um, maybe you I'm need to do a review. <laughs> yeah, maybe I could. But I don't know all, all of these things about all these awesome mouse 
mice mouses. All right, very cool. Well, uh, we want to recommend in every episode a doodad of the week, some kind of product that uh, that we can recommend to all of you. And uh, Connor, what do you have for us first? Um, well, my first one is talking about pen tablets. I really love the Wacom Intuos Pro tablet. Um, it's a large, Wacom is a company that is kind of accepted as being the standard in pen tablets. And the Intuos, they have the regular Intuos line and an Intuos Pro line. And the regular Intuos line is about $100 cheaper for each of their sizes than the Intuos Pro. And they work just fine. But they don't have quite the same depth and sensitivity that the Intuos Pro level has. And the Pro also has a nice feature in which you can use the pen at different angles. Um, so it's not something that you're going to use for every bit of editing that you ever do. But it's nice to have that little added functionality. It also has a couple of extra buttons on the side that can help you kind of hotkey through your editing system. Um, but yeah, welcome into Intuos Pro. That is my doodad. Very cool. Jeff? So mine's an effort to try to uh, make it easy for you to keep a little safer on the internet. It ties in with my day job. I deal with security uh, every day. and it, But it's something that could be valuable for you because you could set it and forget it. It's a simple thing to do, and it really can provide a ton of protection, uh, particularly against stuff like the crypto lockers or those those things that will encrypt your hard drive and then tell you you got to pay Bitcoin to get it, get it freed up again. So uh, it's OpenDNS. So this is uh, at OpenDNS.org. You can go find out the free services that it offers. And even the free service offers a lot of protection on what you do. So they, they get a whole lot of traffic that flows through them. A lot of DNS lookups that are, it has to happen every time you go to a website, your computer has to do this. And that what they'll do is they'll take a look at your request and say, oh, I know that what you're uh, you're trying to look up right now is a bad thing, a bad guy, you know, malicious thing. And it will say you're not we're not going to send you there. We'll send you off to a screen. If it's your browser, we'll send you off to a screen that says that was a bad thing. Don't do that. And uh, so it offers a whole bunch of protection. It's pretty easy. You can go put in a, this, these four numbers into your Wi-Fi router and just change your DNS settings so that it goes there and uh, can really help you stay a little bit safer. Very cool. Well, my recommendation for this week is the E-Tech City Wireless Remote Control Electrical Outlet Switch for household appliances. <laughs> so this is, uh, it's basically a little switch that goes, you plug it into the wall where you normally plug stuff in, um, and then you can, uh, uh, you can put any outlet, any appliance, any anything, uh, you plug into this. So it just goes between the, the outlet and whatever you're trying to plug in. And uh, it has a remote control. And so if you have a bunch of things in a room that you need to turn on at once, like if you are a photographer shooting with studio strobes, hint, hint, Connor, um, if you (laughs) have to walk around and turn on five different flashes before every shoot, and then you've got to walk around and turn on different room lights and turn off some room lights and get it all set up for your studio to work, you just can, you get a bunch of these that hook into your outlets, and then you have one remote and with that one remote you just press one button and poof everything in the studio turns on and you're set to go this is what i use in my office because i have three different video lights turned on i have three different computers two tvs 
and five different cameras. And I want to turn them all on uh, instead of spending 10 minutes doing the rounds around the office. Uh, for the video system, I can just press one button and poof, everything is on. Mm. But I thought it'd be cool for if you're a studio photographer uh, to save a lot of time. Anything I can automate, all about it. You know, I think that's actually a great tip, but I think I'm a bit more of a fan of the clapper. (laughs) 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 All right. And we also have a do random of the week. Connor, what do you have for us? Um, My do random is sunscreen. You guys, it's warming up, at least here in the northern hemisphere. I'm kind of an indoor cat, but I went out and shot last weekend outdoors and my neck is peeling. I'm really feeling it. Please protect your skin. Um, it's nothing, no specific brand, nothing like that. Just protect your skin, get some sunscreen. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for joining us on this episode of the Improved Photography Podcast. Really appreciate your support of everything we do. Uh, it's a lot of fun to bring these shows to you every week. And so uh, we appreciate you sharing them with others and, and enjoying them. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.